0: Malachi, chapter number one. For some of you, that might be easier to go to Matthew and go one book to your left. You might find it quicker. I feel sorry for you. Last week, you got to go home. You had a taste of freedom. You ate home cooking. You slept in. And then they had the audacity to make you come back for two and a half weeks of the hardest part of the semester. They're just not fair. Life is just not fair. <laughs> it is good to be back on campus. The faces change. The campus is the same. Where I'm standing here, um, I used to work in the athletic department, actually with Rob Thompson, and this spot here was one of my favorite parts of campus before they redid the platform. There were two marks right where I'm standing where the, the parquet wood floor had worn out. There were two footprints right behind where the old pulpit stood. And to me, that was one of the testimonies of what Maranatha was about. That things changed and things got rearranged, but there's a testimony of God's word being preached here, year in and year out. And so it is an honor to be part of that testimony today. I think I gave you enough time to find Malachi. Yeah? So let's pray. And so, God, now we open up your word, and since it's your word, and our hope is your gospel, and by your grace we are your children, it is only fitting that we pray to you, and pray that you would strengthen your people today through your word and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. We've crossed Thanksgiving off the list, which means now we've hit Christmas season. Yesterday, I bought my Christmas tree. I put it up. I officially allowed myself on the way home from Thanksgiving with family to start listening to Christmas music because that's a line I'm just not going to cross. I'm not doing Christmas music before Thanksgiving. There's just standards you have to have. So we've come close now to Christmas season. It's, it's, It's starting. I remember a Christmas when I was, I probably had to be four years old, maybe five years old. And my parents gave me some money to buy Christmas gifts uh, for my sisters. Those were the good days where you didn't have to use your own money. They just give you money and say, Go be loving to your sisters. And so they, they gave me like a dollar or two dollars to go buy some gifts. Now, back in the day, you could do a lot of damage on the candy aisle with a dollar or two. And as a four-year-old boy, like, what's a better gift than candy? Like, I don't... It, as a 38-year-old guy, what's the better gift than candy, really? I mean, it, it's, it's right up there. And, and so I remember I went through the candy aisle, and I made some purchases for my sisters, some packs of gum or something, and got up to the cash register and placed them on the cash register desk, and I put my dollar there. And then, I don't know if you remember being young, and that first purchase you make, and you don't realize that something amazing happens. Not only do you give money and you get the product, they give you money back. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing concept. You give one piece of paper money, and they give you three coins back. You come out ahead. And so I looked at my three coins, maybe two coins, both pennies, and my, my impulse response was to be generous again. I see how much of a big heart I had? I looked at my two pennies, and I thought, yes, I still can buy my dad a gift now, too. My dad was not impressed with my generosity because he knew what my two pennies meant. I'm still trying to make up for that gift years later. But the thinking behind I had in that moment that I could use whatever little I had left over after making my other purchases to give a gift to my dad is sadly the same thinking that the people of Israel and the priests of Israel had in the book of Malachi. Malachi. That when they came to God for worship, they could give God whatever was left over. After they had everything else they wanted, they looked at what they had and said, what's the least I have that I could give to God now? Now, there is a part of me today that I know I am preaching from a book that we are very far away from. Some of you from your Bib Interp class, are going to be like, Luke, you... This is Malachi. We're New Testaments. This is Old Testament. We're, we don't offer sacrifices. We're good. I want to push you this morning. I'm fearful that the same heart that offers leftover worship to God in Malachi is the same heart that shows up in our lives. Would you walk through this chapter with me? Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts. O priest that despise my name. And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? You offer polluted bread upon my altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? And that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind sacrifice, is that not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person? Sayeth the Lord of hosts. And now I pray thee, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, sayeth the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that should shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you saith the lord of hosts neither will i accept an offering of your hands for from the rising of the sun even unto going down of the same my name shall be great among the gentiles and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen saith the lord of hosts but you have profaned it and that you say the table of the lord is polluted and the fruit thereof even his meat is contemptible he also said, Behold, what a weariness it is. And you have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And you brought that which was torn, and that which was lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this by your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth in the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts. And my name is dreadful or feared among the heathen. Now, like I already said, there's some things in that passage that's just going to be like we're going to scratch our head on. That's not our world. But the premise of what they were doing, of offering up God their leftovers, that bridges to our day. It's the same heart. They can book salad an evening, late into the morning, gaming, but then can't find time to read God's Word. I, I know much of your religious practices right now are regulated by an authority over you. When I preached this sermon to my church, I made the statement, it is the same thinking that can wake up at an ungodly hour to go hunting, Black Friday shopping, or catch a tea time. And then as soon as God's word begins read on Sunday mornings, they fall asleep. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with video games. I played some recently. There might be something wrong with hunting. I just don't like it. It's really boring. And there's nothing wrong with golf. That's fine. But what my heart is burdened for is that are we offering God what is left over of our energies, time, resources, love, and passion? after we've filled up our life with everything else and say, here is God, what I have left over. Now, we're going to bounce around this chapter in the next few minutes. So let's just unpack the problem that's going on because God condemns them. There's a charge that you are offering me your leftover worships. So look back down to verse number six. Now, we ask some questions. We'll get to that in a second. But he throws the charge out to them. You have despised my name, O priests. You have you have." held my name in contempt. You've looked down upon it. Now, their impulse reaction, and I love how, I love how Malachi is written, because it's this hypothetical dialogue. God places the charge out to them. You, you've despised my name, priests. And their impulse reaction is to say, wait, who, me? How, how have we done that? We haven't despised your name. Now, I don't know. I don't know if they're genuinely blind to their sin. Or maybe they're just plain ignorant. Maybe they're like the individual, your roommate, who eats all your snacks from your care package. And then you walk in and you're like, you have eaten all my snacks. And they have they have chocolate chip cookie crumbs falling off their mouth. And they have the audacity to say, what snacks? You, you, you had a care package? Somebody loves you enough to send you a care package? I didn't even know. No way. I don't know what you're talking about. And you're like, the evidence is all over you. And here's God. You have despised my name. How have we despised your name? Next verse. Because you have offered blind sacrifices. Lame sacrifices. Sick sacrifices. Isn't that evil? Isn't that wrong, priests? Now, they know better than this. I mean, they know the Old Testament. They know the book of Leviticus. I mean, you read the book of Leviticus, and you got this like repeated phrase over and over again, right? After sacrifice, after sacrifice, you know every sacrifice is supposed to be without blemish. I mean, it's drilled into them. This is the level of worship to me. When you offer a sacrifice, it better be without blemish. And in fact, they could go chapter and verse to Leviticus 22, and he's really clear what without blemish means. I mean, they can't be like, well, I I think blemish, this is probably good. I mean, he's really clear. Animals that are blind, disabled, mutilated, or having a discharge or an itch, or scab shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on my altar. There's no like, well, it's probably going to be okay. They know what they're doing. Is offering what is left over of their flock that they don't really want anyway. So let's just give it to God. They walk out to their flock. It's time for another sacrifice. Hey, Jonah. Jonah, bring me, bring me that sheep. Which sheep, Dad? You know, the blind one. Which blind one, Dad? The, the blind one that keeps running into the tree over there. Let's just get rid of that one. I don't know, Dad. That one's sick. I don't think they're going to live much longer. Perfect. Wrap it up. Let's go. And that's what they're going to go offer to God. Verse 12, God's already saying what this is. Isn't this evil? Verse 12 unpacks it even more. It unpacks what they're doing again. But Then in verse 13, behold, this is their heart now. Not just their action, this is their heart. What a weariness it is. You know what weariness is. Weariness is what you feel when you wake up on the fifth, the fifth time your alarm has gone off on day 56 of the semester. That's weariness, right? Like day one, day one, you, you, Man, especially for the freshmen, day one, you're awake before the alarm goes off. I mean, this is new, this is special, you've had your outfit picked out the day before, you're up in time, you're up in time to get a hot breakfast in the dining hall, take a shower, read your Bible, pray, and you're, the, you're, you're waiting for the professor to make its way to the classroom. I mean, day one, you take notes. <laughs> day one, you laugh at your professor's jokes. You're engaged. Day 56... Your alarm goes off and you smash your phone. You don't care how expensive it is. Day 56, you stare up at the ceiling thinking, why am I even doing this? And I'm paying for the right to do this. Day 56, you don't have to admit it, no show of hands. Showers don't happen. Day 56, you you literally stumble your way into a room as the professor is starting the class. You don't bother taking out your book. And you learn by day seven, he's not funny anyway, so you're not going to laugh. You know what weariness is. The sad reality of what this passage just said is, they think worship of God is weariness. Now, I don't know. Verse six is definitely geared to the priest's. They are the religious leaders of their day, and so they're very much at fault for what is going on. But they're not the ones who bring the sacrifices. They're the ones who get called out automatically, because they are the spiritual leaders. But I would say all of the people are, all the people are being condemned here because it's the people who are bringing these half-hearted sacrifices to God and it's the priests who are allowing them to bring the half-hearted sacrifices to God. So when we get to this statement of this is such a weariness, this can be the people. Well, I guess, I guess we've got to offer sacrifice to God again. Like, haven't done that one before. All right, let's pick out an offering. Would you believe it that he has to put his temple on top of a hill so we've got to walk uphill to this thing? he be the priests. Another day, let's go kill some more animals. Let's go skin some more animals. You know, wouldn't it be better if the people just stopped sinning? Oh, that's not going to happen. Well, wouldn't it just be better if God would stop asking for the sacrifices? What weariness. Worship to God for them had simply become a monotonous drudgery. Ever feel like that? Ever feel like to the point that worship and service of God has become a monotonous drudgery? Yeah, I know I should read my Bible again. All right, well, let's go for it. Don't want to feel convicted later on. Yeah, I I, I should pray some more. Can't believe it's Sunday again. It was like wasn't it like Sunday like last just yesterday was Sunday. All right, I'm supposed to go to church again. Maybe I'm sick. Maybe I could act like I'm sick. You finally get to the service. Are we seriously going to sing another song? Oh, they are going to make a stand and sing this song. Like I can sit and sing this song just fine. And then we're probably going to sing. T- oh yeah, we're going to sing all 27 verses of "Just as I Am." All of them? Yeah, all of them. What weariness! Is he going to keep on talking? Yeah, he's going to keep on talking. I mean, he's just going to keep on going and going and going. What weariness? Our our physical actions of worship may be very different than what we read in Malachi 1. But I know enough of my heart and I've talked to enough people to know that the heart aspects are the same. That we easily get the points in our life where, where our worship of God is simply a monotonous drudgery. And when it becomes a monotonous drudgery, what we do is simply offer God up our leftovers. After we've filled up our life with anything and everything else, God, i got time here. In fact, I love how this verse continues on. Um, verse 13, Behold what a weariness, and you have snuffed at it. Man, I, I have come to wish that at times the Bible had audio clips that you could just kind of hit the word and kind of, because that's an audio word right there. It is snorted. Now, you you guys used to be teenagers just a little while ago, so you know exactly what that word means. That is the huff that you gave when you didn't like what you were told to do. It usually went with an eye roll at the same time. <sighs> That's what they just did. Worship God. Uh, that's what my three year older does. Not when I say worship God. When I say eat your vegetables. Uh, what drudgery. What weariness. Don't think it's a big deal? Look how God views this. Verse six, let's go back up because there's a conversation happening. How does God view this? A son honors his father. Not 100% rule, just kind of like a general rule of society. Sons obey fathers. And servants, their masters. Again, not perfect, but just general rule. Servants obey their masters. And then he's got them. I mean, this is pure logic argument. He's got them. Well, um, I'm your father. And I'm your master. So where's my honor? God's basically pushing them back and saying, wait a minute here, you guys are offering better honor and obedience to your, to your parents and your earthly authorities than you are offering to me. That may not be you, but just, just wrestle with this. If you gave your employer the same level of commitment and service that you give God, would you still be employed? Because I think sometimes we tell God things we wouldn't dream of telling our employer. Well, I'm just, whew, just don't really feel like coming into work today. So um, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not really, and I'm so swamped right now. So I'm, this is all I got to offer right now. I'm just going to work a couple hours and I got to leave. Yet somehow we've come to the point that we think that is enough with God verse 8 God says why don't you go try that with your governors why don't you take your leftover broken down animals and offer that up to your governor and see if that helps you get in good favor with them this is the culture where where you might not like the word but bribery was just kind of accepted where where you kind of greased the wheels of economy by offering up to your governor to your to your 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 authority, a little gift to keep things going. I was in Zambia a few years ago and driving with my missionary partner and on the front seat he had, a, he had a cases of soda. I'm like, dude, what are you doing with all this soda? I mean, it's not even healthy. And, and he would just routinely stop and pass the sodas out to every police officer between his house and his ministry. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I learned within two weeks, if I did not pass out sodas, they would stop me every day. And then when he goes to the governor's office to get his paperwork reapplied, he's like, I can, I can bring nothing and spend all day where I can bring a case of soda and be out in 20 minutes. That's the culture that they're in right here. So if you want to get into good favor with your earthly authorities, you know how that works. You bring them a little something-something. And don't shake your heads like you don't do it. I've seen my dad's office during finals exam week. And he has cases of Mountain Dew. You know how this works. You bring the good stuff during finals. Do you really think it's going to help you if you bring your professor some half-drunk, flat bottle of Mountain Dew you've had on your your desk in September? You wouldn't do it. And he's saying, that's what you're doing with God, though. In fact, I love this verse number 10. Here's God's heart. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors? I wish somebody would just lock the doors of my temple. Would you just shut it down? Close them up. So what's the solution? I think at points, we get to this point where we just say, here's the solution. We... Let's do better. No. The passage gives us the solution. And the solution is that we need to see a great God. Leftover worship to God out of a heart that is doing service and worship to God is nothing more than drudgery is destroyed when that heart is gripped by the great God that he is. Knowing God's greatness is the solution to leftover worship of God. This is what God puts right back at them. Verse number 11, From the rising of the sun till the setting of the sun, my name will be great. Across my entire world, Sacrifices will be offered. Incense will be offered because my name will be great. Israel, I don't need your leftover worship and offerings. I will make my name great across my entire creation because that's who I am. I'm a great God. And God is right. A few hundred years later, God will send his son to earth. And earth in the moment of his birth will be oblivious to what just happened and so heaven cannot hold it back and they will proclaim the greatness of the God that just was born and fill the sky. But that's just a foretaste. That son will walk around that earth and minister and the vast majority of individuals will walk away from him. And in fact, in the very moment that all of earth should be praising God for the sacrifice that has been given that is perfect and without blemish. Part of the world will be rejoicing because they think they defeated him, and part of the world will be running away because they're defeated. But then that son will conquer death by making the perfect payment for sin and he will rise and declare to his disciples that they are to go to all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of every nation because one day that son will return and he will be enthroned and all of the world from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun will proclaim that King Jesus is a great God. Verse 14. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts. And my name is dreadful. It is to be feared among the nations. But I am a great God. The God who, is, the God who everything is from him and to him and for him. That great God. The great God who made entire solar systems that merely appear to us as little dots of light that are one fractions of the heavens that declare the glory of God, great God. The God who is the just and still the justifier of those who believe, great God. The God who forms mountain ranges on planets that we will never even see simply declare his greatness because he can the God who declares his beauty in little minuscule opportunities of his creation that we can't even comprehend, great God. My uncle referenced Isaiah 6 already this morning. Do you realize in that passage in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the greatness of God, and he does not need to be told to worship that God in that moment. I mean, that passage unfolds, unfolds. Isaiah sees it. Nobody, no angel comes up to Isaiah and nudges him saying, by the way, this is probably a right time to kind of confess your sins and worship God. He sees the greatness of God and the impulse reaction is, I am undone. I'm unclean. And the people back there are unclean too. In fact, you walk through scripture, anybody that gets a glimpse of God's greatness does not have to be told to worship that God. They do it. Revelation. No one's prepped to saying, "Hey, it's time to worship God." They worship. Peter's on the Mount of Transfiguration. No one tells him it's, it's time to worship Jesus. Now he goes a little far and says, "Let's worship some other people here too." But no one has to tell him it's time to worship. The greatness of God sinking into my heart destroys half-hearted worship. See, the problem of the passage isn't so much the animals that they're bringing. Isn't the, this is so wearisome. The real heart problem of the passage is they don't think their God's great. The sober reality is our worship reveals who we think our God is. Small God, distant God, Who cares how we worship that God? Great God, creator God, all-powerful God. Catch a little more glimpse of that God, and he deserves to be worshiped, and you know it. I had a love-hate relationship with company growing up, because my dad was a pastor. Sundays often meant when we had guests or missionaries, we would have company. I hated company because it meant we had to clean the house. Um, we had to clean parts of the house the company wasn't even going to see. And I, I would point those things out. It, it, my logic was not accepted. You still have to go clean your room. Um, I love company, though, because company meant, company meant my mom would cook the company dinner meal. Like, I don't, every other day I'd have to ask mom, what are we having? And my mom would say, food. I'm like, can you be more specific? No, it's food. Because she knew I'd complain about what I was going to have. But company day, I, I didn't have to ask. I knew company dinner meant she would make a dish that was called chicken and cheese. It is, it is breaded chicken, then fried, and then baked with a whole bunch of cheese and broth. Nothing wrong with that, right? Nothing wrong with that. And then she would make homemade biscuits. And the biscuits are not... See, I say biscuits, and some of you guys... And, man, I feel bad for your childhood. You picture this can that pops, and you put some things on a baking tray, and you put them in the oven. Those are not biscuits, Okay? I'm not sure what those things are. She'd make scratch-made angel biscuits because they're so good, we just have to call them heavenly kind of biscuits. I'm sure, I'm sure because I know my mom, she had she a couple of vegetables on the table, but I blocked those out of my memory. I don't know what they were, okay? That wasn't important. I always just knew company meant they get the best meal the love house has. We would never dream of company coming into our house and my dad being on the couch watching the game and saying, hey, by the way, we're, doing, we're kind of doing leftovers this lunch, okay? So I think we had some pizza a couple days ago. Uh, hon, did, did, we have, did we have meatballs? Are there, there's still some meatballs in the fridge, right? Yeah, and we can heat up some green beans if you like. If that's not good, cold cereal, okay? Help yourself, okay? No. Who came in the door warranted that we, we give them the best that we have? Not leftovers. So then, what is your great God getting from you? Or maybe I should ask this way What does your great God deserve from you? God, your word tells us the answer to that. A God who gave his Son to die for us, deserves our life, our all. I pray for action change, but I pray really what happens is heart realization of your greatness. That we, in moments today, in meditation, in thought, and in word, would come to realize a little bit more your greatness, so that the worship that we offer and the service that we offer up to you is more and more fitting of the worship and service that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.